podcast gang again. How are you? I know it's not the usual Monday or occasionally if we're hungover Tuesday broadcast. It's a special broadcast because whilst I, Tom Rennie, was on my holidays, Brian Dunseth decided, in typical Dunsethery style, to start working really, really hard. Um, and so we had a whole bunch of brilliant specials that Danny recorded in my absence that I listened to on the beach with envious, envious eyes and rage, which was dissipated by several pina coladas uh, because they were so good and I wish I was involved in the shows. We've got another special for you right now and Dunny is here to tell us what great guest he got on in my absence once again. Yeah, Rennie, while you were enjoying those pina coladas on your sunbed, I spoke with John Bradley, he of Game of Thrones, uh, Samuel Tarly fame. He's got two movies coming out. Uh, It's Moonfall that came out the other day which is this extraordinary epic sci-fi movie. And he has a movie called Marry Me alongside Jennifer Lopez. J-Lo, you might know. It comes out Valentine's Day weekend. So You didn't whether, think I would know Jennifer Lopez. So you just letting you know, J-Lo. J-Lo. J-Lo, it's what the kids I say. Knew who, I know Jennifer Lopez. Is. Oh. I live in the West. Oh, by the way, I saw her in person maybe like Ooh. four or five years ago. Mm. One of the most extraordinarily beautiful human beings I've ever seen. Yeah, so good. Just going to tag that for a thumbs up. Incredibly talented as well. Yes, yes, yes. Ludicrously talented. I mean, she just stopped traffic, literally, as she... She was crossing a street, so traffic yeah, stopped. Anyway, that was community service. Not, so neither here nor to. there. So, anyways, he uh, he plays an agent in the movie. He was uh, tells the story about how J Lo gave him a call and specifically wanted him. It was really the first big role since Game of Thrones ended. And by the way, he's a Man United supporter, so you're gonna love listening to this, Tom Rennie, John Bradley. Welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, so I always do this with like players. I always say, okay, what did the landscape look like growing up? So I'll do the same for you. Take me back to Manchester area. You're 33 years old. Like what was that magic moment where you're, you're, you're watching a movie, you're staring at the television, you're like, aha, that's what I want to be. I was very young, but really young. Too young to know what an actor was and too young to know that they were given a script to learn and they were filmed doing it and it was an actual profession and a job that you could go into I didn't know about any of that we didn't when I was a kid we didn't watch many movies we didn't watch much drama on tv we never went to the theater at all we just used to watch comedy like tv comedy and that that was what I was raised on and I remember watching things like you know, all, all the sort of classics. It, it was Laurel and Hardy mainly for me. My mum and dad, they're a bit older than sort of a lot of the parents of my peers. So, so they, they were into a lot of, sort of older, older stuff. So a lot of my, um, my scope for, of entertainment was a lot wider than a lot of other kids my age. So I was watching Laurel and Hardy when I was sort of four years old. I remember watching it on telly and it making me so happy. Comedy used to make me so happy and you fall in love with performers who make you laugh and make you smile. And before I knew what it was or before I knew that I could ever do it for a living or a living was even to be made out of it, I remember thinking, I'd love to make somebody else feel mm-hmm. the way I'm being made to feel now by watching this. I just thought that connection between two people who will never meet, never be in the same room, can't touch each other. In the case of Laurel and Hardy, they were both dead when I, were watch- was on, when I was watching them. The fact that that relationship can sort of transcend the ages. I just thought it was a real privilege to affect people in that way. And yeah, I just wanted to sort of carry on that, that baton, if you like. And 
hopefully make a few people happy the way I was made to feel happy by my heroes. What was that very first audition like? What, like the, what was the first audition you walk in the room and you recognize that you have to transform into a character that impresses those who are making the decisions to effectively give you your first job? Well, my, Game of Thrones was my first audition. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I auditioned for that while I was still at drama college in Manchester. And I just signed with my agent. We did, a, we did a showcase for agents at drama school that they came to and they could select people that they liked. And I just signed with my agent. It was the first thing that she ever put me up for. And I, it was a big HBO show and Sean Bean was going to be in it. And, you know, Peter Dinklage was going to be in it. So I wasn't even really thinking about getting it because I thought that was so unlikely. All I wanted to do was to go in and not, embarrass myself to the point that my agent regretted taking me on you know what I mean it was it, yeah. it was an audition with my with my agent in mind to to justify her selection of me and to make her think she hadn't made a mistake and in the end I ended up I ended up getting it which was completely completely surprising and you know to be honest I was so I was kind of unprepared for it because the training I did was very theatrical we didn't do much camera work at all uh, so I learned how to be an actor for camera on Game of Thrones. And there are so many of us like myself, Kit Harrington, Amelia Clark, Richard Madden, who hadn't done a great deal before, but David Benioff and Dan Weiss and everybody at HBO trusted us with these parts just on instinct. And they gave us that opportunity. And we'd like to think that we sort of repaid them with, with the performances that they deserved, we hope. But we'll always be grateful. So for, for us as consumers, right, you're talking about one of, one of the, in terms of series, one of the, one of the m- most massive series on television over that 10-year span. But I'm always kind of intrigued, like, for you personally, what was, like, that first moment where you're, like, you, you understood kind of the power of what you, what you guys were creating at the time? I think when, we, when I got the biggest sense of it was when we, went, we were allowed to go and do a premiere of season three in LA. That was the first time that we've been allowed to go to America with the show because we, 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 most of the cast lived in the UK and we filmed the show in the UK. We filmed it in Northern Ireland. So for us, a little 40 minute flight from London or Manchester over to Belfast, you shoot this show, then you come back home and you, and you know, you do it that way. We didn't really get a sense of the, the global magnitude of it because it felt really close to home. It was only when we were allowed to go to LA and see the, the effect that it was having and the momentum it was gathering in Hollywood, in LA, in America, that we, that was the first time that we really felt that we were, oh, we, we, we are getting to be alongside Sopranos and, and things like that. It may not feel like it when we shoot it, but we're being spoken of in that same conversation now. And, that was the moment where I think in, in terms of our comprehension of the reach of it, that was where it sort of went up a gear. So uh, a friend of mine is, a, is the actor Donald Logue. And we, we, we played football together with Hollywood United out in L.A. And one of the things we always talked about when I would ask him questions about his career, is he said kind of one for them, two for me. And he was always kind of not nervous, but he was generally aware of what roles would do for his career both positively and negatively, and then kind of thinking about what that next step was, how we could become another character in people's eyes. How have you kind of approached the transition 
from what Game of Thrones was to now what Moonfall and Marry Me are going to be in the next two weeks? When I came out of Game of Thrones, uh, I was so conscious of, of getting away from Samwell and Samwellish type bookish sort of intellectual characters that I didn't, I didn't work for a year over a year because I was trying to I, I trying to resist it so much parts had come in occasionally but we're looking for a sort of slightly nerdy bookwormy low self-esteem kind of guy I just thought well I've, I've done that and if I if I was to take that part now I'd just be shackling myself to that persona for for the rest of my life really so I waited a long time and then about a year after that we wrapped the show I got a call to say um Jennifer Lopez is doing a, a musical romantic comedy. Owen Wilson's going to be in it and Maluma's going to be in it and it's going to be set now. We're going to shoot it in New York. It's going to be, you know, everything's going to look great. It's going to be a proper glam squad movie. And we'd like, Jennifer would like you to play her manager in it with no audition, which I couldn't believe. And, and I just thought, well, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do it because when you come from a background that I do, which is a working class background where you never thought you'd ever get into movies, you just don't think lightning's gonna strike twice. You think I've had one opportunity, the fact that they give me another one, that just seems too good to believe. So I owe her a great debt in terms of my confidence and loved Marry Me. That comes out uh, for Valentine's Day weekend. Had a great time on that. And since then, because that was so different, that felt like a bit of a reset for me in terms of I, I now I'm slightly less concerned about playing characters that are a bit more like Sam or a bit more like something else I've done because I've had this thing that's so different that people can see me in. It lets them know that I can do other things. And now, now, I, I, now I judge it on the story. And if I can serve the story best by playing similar characteristics to what I've done before I'm not going to change it to the detriment of the story I'll just serve the story and serve the mm -hmm. writer and I'm slightly less precious about it now I think again Brian Dunn says speaking with John Bradley if you want to follow him on Twitter Instagram highly uh, suggest John Bradley West again marry me Valentine's Day weekend Jennifer Lopez Owen Wilson Malumo so really quick you play an agent right uh, Colin Calloway I'm always yeah. intrigued by this when when you look for kind of the patterns of inspiration for whatever character being an agent, are you, are you the agent that you would want your, to, your, your, as a client, you would want your agent to be? Or do you kind of take on the, I don't know, the, the aggressive, more, more kind of in line, follow my lead, this is what we need to do, what's best for your career? Um, we developed, myself and, and Kat Coiro, the wonderful director of the movie, we developed this this backstory because you know it, it was it was it was a part on the page that that could have gone anyway really like every actor that that they considered for it would bring their own priorities and their own personality to it and would change it in so many different directions depending on who was playing the part and so for me we arrived on this backstory that he's quite green and he's quite he's quite new to all this and Jennifer's character, Kat Valdez, she could have gone with a big one. She could have, she could have gone with a, you know, with a CAA or a something like that, but she's, but she's, she just likes this guy and she knows how hard he would work. Sometimes if people 
are already at the top they they're complacent and they don't feel that they have to work yeah. for their clients and yeah. but the thing the thing about him was he had such a drive to him once again like myself with with david and dan and with jennifer herself and with other producers that desire to prove that they they made the right choice that was what it that was what it was it was it was that guy who who's been given this chance and doesn't want to mess it up and wants to be the best that he possibly can be for her and the sort of the thing that i had in my mind uh, for the whole performance of Colin is this is the idea of a swan you know like a swan mm. is very very graceful and very very still on the surface but their feet are going like crazy <laughs> under the water just, yeah. just to propel them along there's something about that about he's stressed and he's anxious and he's flustered but he can never show it to her because that would be him saying I'm struggling and he never wants to be seen to struggle mm. so yeah it, it, it's a supporting role but sometimes if you make these little decisions, it can not only affect your own your own character, your own performance, but the performances and the characterizations of the people around you as well. If you sort of look deep enough into it, you'll find these little nuggets of info, which can hopefully enrich everything. So one of the things I love to ask my, my friends that are that are actors is when they're going through their lines, are you like a night before memorization? Are you kind of day of like how, how do you how do you absorb the lines? tend to be the night before because what I find with myself is when I when I read a script when I when I read a scene I I can especially if it's a comic scene I can kind of lock into the comic music of it quite quickly so I'll think oh well, oh well the funniest way to say this line is to leave a pause there and and it put an inflection in there and maybe move my eyes that way when I say I'm quite mechanical about it. And if I do that too early, I've just got it on my mind and I'm mm. worried about replicating that. And the, the further away you get from it, and the longer you live with it, the harder it is to replicate because you stop feeling it and you're just thinking your way through it. So I, I tend to do it the night before just so it's... So on the day, I, I know the lines but they're still relatively fresh and they've not gone stale and I can still connect with the, the proper meaning of it rather than just the sort of nuts and bolts of where I'm looking or how I'm saying it, because that's not really acting. That's just, that's just parroting and trying to, trying to replicate something that you know, you've forgotten what the inspiration for it was in the first place sometimes. Mm. So Mary Me comes out Valentine's day weekend, February 11th tomorrow, Moonfall drops movie theaters, IMAX. I, I, just watching the trailer, I can't even imagine what this would look like in the theater with the sound, especially with Roland Emmerich in charge. Uh, he of Independence Day of past. From script to auditioning to getting the job to getting on set, like kind of walk me through those first couple of moments. You've, you've got Halle Berry, you've got Patrick Wilson, you've got Michael Pena and company. When you guys are on set and you, and you recognize what this idea is in Roland Emmerich's mind, how do you I don't know, how do you try to stay within the confines of, of acting and yet at the same time understanding or trying to understand what he's seeing, what his vision is? I think it, it's all a matter of when you, the moments where you can feel you can contribute something and the moments where you just have to defer to a genius who knows exactly what he's doing. I, I think with the characterizations of it, and with the, you know, the relationships between these characters, we could have a hand in that and we could talk about that. And we could, we could develop a chemistry and develop a backstory for these characters. But when it comes to 
the VFX and the green screen and the destruction of the planet. There's nobody better at doing that than Roland. So it's almost as if the jobs and the priorities were very clearly delineated. We were like, Roland, you put up a green screen and you project whatever you want onto that. Mm. You can. He got to design the inside of the moon in this movie, which he's obviously never done before. So he was allowed to get on with designing that and making that exactly as he wanted it to be. And we'll just get on with making these little human stories in the middle of it all. And it, it, was, it was almost like, if you take away the scope of it, you take away the bells and whistles and explosions and the earth blowing up and everything's on fire. If you try and take away all that and you just play the scene between myself and Hallie, myself and Patrick, you could be just in any movie then. You could be doing a play almost if you just get it down to eyeball to eyeball acting with with other human beings it just becomes the same acting that it always was and i think that that's that's when you get a movie um that 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 is fine is properly well balanced when you get the spectacle and you get the humanity without without that humanity the spectacle doesn't really mean anything because once again you don't care about the people at the center of it so we let him get on with that and then we were allowed to to flesh out our characters a bit for ourselves it was really nice and great combination between trust and total trust and collaboration. And for those that are, are heading into the movie, how would you kind of uh, explain your character, Casey Houseman? Well, Casey, when the movie starts, Casey is one of those guys who's completely alone in the world. He's, he's got quite a tragic backstory. His, his father died when he was young. He's got no brothers and sisters. His mom He's in a home and she's got dementia. She doesn't recognize him. He's got no relationship and got no friends. So he's completely alone in the world. Um, transplanted, grew up in England, transplanted to America. So he's, he's ge- geographically out of place as well. And he spends all of his waking moments uh, researching this I- idea that he has that the moon isn't a natural object. The moon that we see in the sky is an alien construct that was built millions of years ago and it's hanging above the earth and any day now it's going to do us some serious damage and now he's learned that the moon is is being knocked out of its orbit and it's getting closer to earth so he believes that end times have come and whoever built the moon whatever alien species built that moon is ready to sort of exact its vendetta on planet earth and that's where we find him so <clears throat> I've become friends with Doug Hurley, uh, the NASA astronaut, SpaceX uh, flight commander. He's out here in Salt Lake City where I'm at. Uh, and I'm going to forgive him because he's a Man City fan. And I don't know how I'm, I'm going to forgive him for supporting City. I, did, I, did, I didn't know Man City fans could be that small. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, well, I'm learning all sorts today. Yeah. And, and the one thing Doug always said, the one thing I was asking him, right, because I have so many questions about space and travel, and, and he's like, man, listen, you want to know when it gets real? When you put the spacesuit on. Like, that's when it gets real. So yeah. for you guys, I mean, as actors, when you put those suits on, like, there's got to be a moment where you're like, I'm, I'm wearing a spacesuit right now. Like, this is really, really incredible. Yeah, yeah 100%. I mean, it, it, for me, it was two childhood ambitions in one, really. One was to be in a big sci-fi Roland Emmerich disaster movie and the other was to put a spacesuit on one day and go into space even though you're in pretending it feels like you're going in space you're in a real a replica of a real space shuttle you've got a suit on there shaking it around so it feels like it's taking off that was sort of two childhood ambitions achieved in one 
but the thing about KC is, and that's this is what makes him different to Harry's character and Patrick's character, is Casey's not an astronaut, and Casey's not been trained for all this. So he 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 can have the can't believe his luck. <laughs> look look at look at my spacesuit enthusiasm of it. He's not he's not a professional in the same way that Brian uh, Patrick's character and, and Joe Harry's character is. So he can maintain that sense of childlike wonder about it so it was nice once again to feed a little bit of my excitement and a bit of my sort of childlike can't believe my luck therein that 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 feeling of i'm living my dream i was living my dream as kc was living his dream and those two emotions sort of fed into each other so yeah it was a it was a great moment for us both so it was there was there in 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 the timing of filming was there any crossover between moonfall and marry me uh, and and by the way i mean i guess we should also acknowledge you're in the middle of a pandemic so that would bring a, bring upon its own set of circumstances yeah it's 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 such a strange thing to sort of get my head around the fact that these movies are coming out a week apart but they were actually shot a whole year apart oh okay they were 12 months apart so marry me was the end of 2019 so that was pre-pandemic and Moonfall was the end of 2020, so that was complete mid-pandemic. That, that was an absolute COVID shoot in in Montreal, um, and Canada took lockdown as seriously as as it's possible to take it. Really, there was nothing open. There was no bars, no restaurants. So it was it was a very unique experience where I had to get to know Patrick and Hallie really quickly with no social aspect to the shoot at all. We couldn't go out mm. for dinner, and we couldn't go out for a drink or anything like that. So all of our chemistry had to be built on set when, you know, you only see each other without a mask on all together for about like half an hour in the day. And the rest of the time you're on your own with your mask on. So it was a strange set of circumstances to try and make a very ambitious movie, but it was the, uh, it was the, the struggle and the difficulty of the circumstances that made us uh, really bond together. I think we're trying to do really hard work. It's hard enough anyway, but in, in quite testing circumstances, and we lent on each other for support. And, and yeah, it, it, we, we managed to get it done in 61 days, which is, which is nothing wow. for a movie like this. And, yeah, the cast and crew really pulled together. And, yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was uh, a proper COVID shoot, but hopefully when you see it, you won't be able to see the join. Again, speaking with John Bradley, his movie's Moonfall coming out February 4th in movie theaters and IMAX. Marry Me on Valentine's Day weekend, February 11th. So, John, I'm a, I'm a Man U fan. I grew up in Southern California, late 90s. My, one of my best friends, Ben Hooper, his family was in Oldham. They were taping games, putting them in VHS, sending them over. We were consuming them over and over wow. and over, like the Pallister, the Bruces, the Dennis Irwins, the Keens, the, the gigs. And getting yeah. to play against them with the national team for like friendlies, it, it was an incredible experience. What's your first like? Close your eyes. Like, what? What's your first Manchester United memory? My first memory of of United, and I, I can't even remember what year it would have been. I remember watching uh, one of one of the as it was then Charity Shields, one of the Charity Shields. It must have. I think it must have been the ninety, the Charity Shield, the first. Charity Shield after we won the league for the first time. So it must have been the start of the 93-94 season. And you just, even, you know, a little kid in Manchester then, you felt that we were on the brink of something. Mm. We felt it was, it, was, it was a special time. You know, we, we'd, gone, we'd gone decades without winning the league before we won the league in, in 93. And you really felt that the, the tides were turning a bit. And we sort of 
determined to wrestle that mantle of the highest amount of league titles from Liverpool. And we really felt that we were on the cusp of something. And as it proved to be, that would be something very, very special. So it was easy to be a Man United fan when I was when I was first getting into football. It was coming from Manchester, but not just that. The global reach of the club was getting more and more intensified then as well. But if you're from Manchester and you have Manchester United in your family, the mid-90s was... Uh, there was only one choice, really. Yeah, I got to see Man U Arsenal Community Shield at the old Wembley in the late '90s, and it was like, oh my god, this is this is oh, incredible. Was, was that the was that the year that we because we played the Community Shield, the Charity Shield against Arsenal? That was the Charity Shield when we won the treble that year. Was it that mm. year? Because we lost it, didn't we? I think yeah, we I think it might it. be the same year. Yeah, yeah, yeah we did. We they did it. lose. Yep. We lost the charity shield in the year that we won the treble, which is frightening. Only one more, one more game we could have walked away with. I, I, I would if, if if the charity shield would have added another trophy to our treble and made it a kind of quadruple. I'd, I'd count the charity shield that year. If that would <laughs> right now, I think we we count anything for the amount of finals we've been in recently and fallen short. Um, Obviously, stadium experience is like the best experience, right? When when you're with your mates or, or you're with the collective of, of the supporters. Like what, what's been maybe like your favorite game or favorite stadium experience with Man United? My favorite game that I've ever been to, and, it, and it's gone down as one of the great games in Premier League history, was the, was the Manchester derby at Old Trafford in the 09-10 season. Okay. Where my, where Michael Owen scored to make it four three in 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 in, in Fergie time in in absolute <laughs> Fergie time it was that day because but yeah I'd say I, I said it at the time and I said it to this day the referee had to put more added time on because Man City spent so long celebrating their equaliser he had to put the added time on so that goal went in because of over exuberant Man City celebrations and it's not a conspiracy about. Sir Alex's influence on referees. I, I said that at the time, and I'll, I'll I'll say it to this day. But that was that was the first Manchester derby that I went to as a season ticket holder. And if you're not got a season ticket holder, you just can't get a ticket to the derby. So that was the first derby that I ever saw happen live, and it was it was just unbelievable. Michael Owen, Michael Owen has a checkered history with with United fans, but but that that moment, scoring that goal at that at that moment in that game gave him a bit of grace and it's one of the most iconic moments of, of sort of recent Manchester derby years and yeah I, I, if I could go back and watch any game again even if it finished 3-3 it was an unbelievable game but to, to snatch that winner was something very special yeah so it's been kind of a crazy and by the way uh, I would assume that kind of the inclusiveness of Manchester United with you I, I think I, you were out in like at UCLA during one of the preseason trips. I know you've been at Old yeah. Trafford in the training facility. So, I mean, kind of those, that's got to be like one of those pinch me moments. Yeah. I mean, I mean that if I could relive any week of my life again, it would be the week that we were in. We were promoting our seventh season of Game of Thrones in LA and the team were, the team were out there doing preseason training. And I remember it was the moment where I was standing in the lobby of the hotel talking to some Manchester United staff who I'd just met for the first time. And across the lobby, Paul Pogba came in <laughs> to, the, to the hotel uh, lobby and saw me and was like pointing at me like That's he recognised me. I just can't. Those are the moments that will stay with me. And you know, I, 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 I got to know them. I David De Gea, I 
text occasionally on Christmas and birthdays and to celebrate the birth of his child recently. And it's, it's just nice to know that, that, you know, they are your heroes, but they're just sort of really nice young people mm. who, 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 you know, are family people. And, and I was, you know, I, I was a fan before of, of the team but, but, but all the players that I've met individually, I'm such fans of them as individuals as well. Yeah, we forget that we judge them between the white lines over the course of 90 minutes, but there are human beings uh, behind that crest. Uh, John, I, I'm really, really thankful that you took the time to join us. Looking forward to Moonfall. And then on the 11th, Valentine's Day weekend, marry me. Uh, appreciate the time, man. Uh, thank you so oh, much. My- my pleasure. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been, it's been lovely talking to you. Thanks a lot. So that was another Week in the Tackle podcast extra where Brian Dunseth once again becomes the Dick Cavett of this program and interviews a great guest without me. Uh, there is another Week in the Tackle coming up very soon, one that I'm in more, so that's good news for everybody. If you enjoyed this episode or other episodes and you want to hear more, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Pandora. Week in the Tackle, also available on the SXM app. Free for most subscribers, download today and set podcasts. For video clips of the show and more, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SiriusXMFC. Week in the Tackle is part of the SiriusXM podcast network and is produced by Tim Horsey. The executive producer is Pete Corey. Sound design was by Joey DeFazio. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and SiriusXM FC's Program Director, Joe Tolleson. SiriusXM Podcasts.